Our scripture reading for this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. You can find this on page 6 of your bulletin. Scripture reading is in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13. You can find this on page 6 of your bulletin. The Gospel of Luke. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read God's Word together. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. This is God's Word. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught His disciples. And He said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, Yet, because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. If you would, lift your hands with me as we come to God in prayer. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word right now. Open our hearts. Begin your work. Transform us. We pray, Spirit, that you would leverage your word in the hearts of your people. We pray, Jesus, that you would be the true preacher in here this morning, preaching to the hearts of your people exactly what they need to hear, to become the exact people that you want them to be. So, Lord, bless this time in your word. Let it be fruitful for the kingdom. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A few weeks ago, I met a dear pastor friend of mine, Pastor Joel Sinclair. Uh, I met him at a coffee shop so that we could do some sermon prep together. And because it was in the evening, uh, he ordered up his coffee and I decided I wasn't going to have coffee. I, I decided that I was, I was going to drink some tea. And so I looked up on the board and I said, African nectar, that looks good. And so I got the tea and, and we sat down and we, we started chopping it up. We were going over, you know, sermon material. We were thinking about illustrations. You know, we sharpened one another like that. And then about halfway through our conversation, I just, 
I just stopped and I said, bruh, this African nectar is slamming. I, I think it's changing my life. And from that moment, I decided I was going to be a tea drinker. And so, so I went home that night. I was thinking about the African nectar. I was trying to get my mind ready for worship, but I was thinking about the nectar. Monday, I went to the grocery store, and I was looking on this whole wall of tea, and I found my African nectar. And I said, yeah. So I went home. I got my grocery bags, and I, I started digging through. I found the African nectar. I tore the package open, and, and, I, and the whole time, I was talking to Vanessa. She's looking at me like, what has gotten into you? Why are you so, in, what is the deal? I was like, girl, this tea is off the chain. Wait, wait till you taste it. I'm, I'm gonna let you have some of mine because I love you. I'm gonna let you have the first sip. So I, finally, once the water boils, I, 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 I rush in and I, I pour it in the cup. I dip the tea bag real quick and then I, I put the sugar in it and then, and then I deliver it to her and I said, because I love you, I'm gonna let you have the first sip. So Vanessa takes the cup. She starts to, Smell it a little bit. She's taking her sweet time. She's blowing on it. I was like, girl, will you drink this doggone tea? She just gives me a look. And then she sips the tea. She reflects for a second and she goes, meh. I was like, you are tripping. This tea is off the chain. I said, give me my tea bag. This one, you ingrateful. So I take the tea. I sniff it a little bit, a little marinate. And then I sipped it and I was like, oh, no, hold up, hold up. Something ain't right here. This, I, I must have got a bad batch. I'm wondering what's going on. I was like, you, you don't understand. This tea, when, when I had it at the coffee shop, this tea was off the chain. But then I got, I don't know what's wrong with this tea. And Vanessa walks over. She picks up the box and she says, well, no wonder. This is that fancy tea. You got you to gotta let it steep for six minutes. You ain't let it steep for six minutes. So I realized that the problem wasn't the tea. The problem was me. I didn't mean to make it rhyme, but you know, it's a good morning, you know? <laughs> See, as, as Christians, we have, we have gotten a taste of the goodness of God in the gospel. We've gotten a taste of, of who Jesus is and, and what he's done. We've, we've gotten a taste of the kingdom. And we get excited about seeing other people get a taste of the kingdom. We, 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 we tear through Bible reading. And we, we dip ourselves into Sunday worship for an hour and 30 minutes every week. We, we dip in and, and then we get busy about the kingdom. But we often see little fruit because there is no strength of the kingdom in us because we haven't steeped in the presence of God long enough, often enough. Many people are not getting a taste of the strength of God's love because we're not steeping in it long enough. Many people aren't, aren't tasting of the, the grace of Jesus. They, they say, meh, because what they get from us is a weak tea. This morning... I want us to talk about the relationship between prayer and the kingdom. Prayer and the kingdom. Because I think it's important when we talk about the kingdom, when we talk about mission, it's easy for us to start thinking about all the, 
the activity of the kingdom. It's easy for us to, to rely on our gifts, our hard work, or our intelligence to advance the kingdom. Immediately we start thinking about, okay, how we can figure out this problem and advance the kingdom. How we can strategize in order to address this issue to advance the kingdom. But here's the deal. None of our gifts will make up for a lack of prayer. None of our intelligence or service will make up for a lack of prayer. Gifts, hard work, intelligence, these things without prayer is weak tea. It's weak tea. So this morning, we're going to reflect on a passage of Scripture in which we see the relationship between prayer and the kingdom of God. And there are two points that I want to advance this morning, two points that I want to drive, and it's this, these two points. Prayer is how the kingdom gets in, and prayer is how the kingdom gets out. Prayer is how the kingdom gets in, and prayer is how the kingdom gets out. So let's look at our first point. Prayer is how the kingdom gets in. Now, if you look at the first verse of our passage, I, th I think there is something very profound, but often overlooked. Look at the text. The passage begins with a powerful picture, and we need to notice what prompts this instruction from Jesus on prayer. The text says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Imagine the scene. Remember that people in this day, they prayed out loud. So the disciples are observing Jesus in his prayer time. They're observing Jesus in his time of prayer and and we have to ask the question, what, what must they have been hearing? What must they have experienced as they observed the prayer life of Jesus? What must these disciples have heard as Jesus prayed to the Father? What love and affection must they have witnessed in his heart? What substance and selflessness must they have heard in his prayer? What longing and dependence must they have heard. And all this, all this prayer arose from the lips of one who was fully God and fully man. These prayers arose from one who did not know the corruption of sin within. All this came from one who cast out demons and healed the sick and disfigured. All of this prayer came from one who raised the widow's son from the dead and stilled a storm with a word. All of this came from one who raised the widow's son from the dead and fed thousands of people by multiplying five loaves and two fish. You would think that of all the people in the world, Jesus would be the person who would need prayer the least. You would think because of his gifts, because of his extraordinary person, because of his freedom from the contamination of sin, you would think that Jesus could just make it on his own. But there's something important that the disciples notice here. And it's this, even the Son of God 
feels the need to prioritize prayer in his personal life and in his ministry life. One disciple, the text shows us, concludes that if Jesus was so earnest and persistent in prayer, then surely he needed to pray. This, This disciple concluded from the life and ministry of Jesus that his His greatest need was to be instructed in prayer. Now listen, for all their faults and missteps, I think the disciples have a shining moment here. This is going to be one of those clips that goes on their highlight reel. One of the few moments they have. Because listen, they could have asked Jesus to teach them any other thing. If you do a lexical search of Lord teach us, You will not find that phrase followed by any other thing. Think about all the things that they could have asked Jesus to teach them. Think about what you would have asked Jesus to teach you. Does it it seem like a wasted opportunity? Of all the things they could have asked Jesus to teach them, they choose prayer. Is that the way you feel it in your heart? They, They could have asked for anything else. They could have said, Lord, teach us how to preach. Because you know how important preaching is, right? Right? Amen. Amen. They could have said, Lord, teach us how to cast out demons and do miracles. I want some some of that Shazam. Teach me how to do that. They could have said, Lord, teach us how to lead. Leadership is big these days, right? Everyone wants to be a leader. No one a follower, right? If I said, how many of y'all in here want to be a Everyone, leader. I'm a leader. They could have said, Lord, teach us how to lead. They could have said, Lord, teach us how to beat our opponents in theological debates. Teach us how to get in there. You know, teach us how to land the blow. Teach us how to, teach us how to win the culture war, Lord. They could have said, teach us how to balance our schedules to get more done in the day. But here, one disciple on behalf of all the others says, Lord, teach us to pray. And based on the response of Jesus, this was one of the moments that would be most crucial in the lives of the disciples and the lives of his apostles. Here Jesus begins to give them what will be the lifeblood of their service and their personal spirituality. This is going to be the epicenter of everything here, prayer. If Jesus in all of his greatness and glory sensed the priority of prayer in his personal life and in his kingdom ministry, then surely they ought to sense the same given who they knew themselves to be. So in verses two through four, Jesus gives them a form of prayer. He gives them a form of prayer. And there's something important that we need to see here, a few things. There are two aspects of this prayer that are that are important from a structural vantage point. One is that Jesus delivers it to them as a formal structured prayer. So there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with having pre-written prayers that we recite that help us to focus, that help to, to broaden our horizons and, and the scope of our prayer. That's an important thing here. But the second thing is Jesus hits on some major themes that are to emerge in the lives of his followers. And, and at the top of this, at the top of this thing, we're going to work through this briefly. This, this prayer 
particularly as it is as it is recorded in Matthew's gospel, is of critical importance for God's followers. In this prayer, we find all of the raw materials of of interest that we should have, all the themes that should be near and dear to our hearts. But if you look at this text, check it out. Look how Jesus starts. This is instruction from Jesus himself, the one that John says was in the Father's bosom, who knew intimacy with God who saw the vision of the kingdom without without any obstruction, who saw all of human life without any blinders, no blind spots. And this is the master's instruction on how we are to pray. And it's critical. The first thing I want to notice together is that there is no preparation for prayer in the sense that they had to somehow get their lives together before they could come to God. They just straight away are invited to step in, stumbling in. There was once an old school cat who was, who was talking about, um, about these guards at this, at this king's palace and how just anybody couldn't make their way in, but every day the, 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 the king's son, a little boy, came running in, stumbling in, broke all decorum, but he was always welcomed in, his, in the king's chamber room because he was the king's son. And that is the first impulse for us. Jesus begins with this most potent invitation. How should you start your prayers, Christian? Father. It starts with a simple and powerful declaration. Father. Matthew says, our Father. Because he's, he's, he's the God of a family. He's the, the father of a family. And we're invited to approach him as father. And according to Luke, father, hallowed be your name. In other words, the disciples are invited to pray that they themselves and that all the people around them would treat God as God. That they wouldn't have a pocket-sized God that they wouldn't have a miniature God who wasn't up to the task that we have before us, who isn't sufficient for our needs, that they wouldn't have this, this safe God who can be tamed, who we can keep out of these different aspects of our lives, who doesn't invade, who doesn't contradict us. No, they're, they're praying that people would treat God as God, that they themselves would treat God as God. Hallowed be your name. It starts with the conviction that the Lord is not just a prayer answering God. He's a prayer exceeding father. He doesn't just answer prayers. He exceeds prayers as a father. He's one who always gives more than we asked because he delights to give not just according to our stunted desires and measured requests, but according to his infinite goodness. It's like this. I've told this story before, but it bears repeating here. One day, I told my daughter, Tiana, I said, hey, babe, um, why don't you go upstairs and, and grab daddy's wallet off of the nightstand and bring it down to me, and I'll give you a nickel. She was like, okay. She runs upstairs. This is when she was little. She runs upstairs. She comes back down with my wallet. She says, okay, daddy, can I have my nickel? 
And I reach in my pocket and I realize I don't have a nickel. All I got is a $5 bill. So I pull out my, my $5 bill and she's holding her hand out like this and I, I put the $5 bill in her hand. And all of a sudden, she bursts into tears. But daddy, you said you were gonna give me a nickel. I said, girl, do you know how many nickels are in that $5 bill? Listen, a lot of times we don't realize the fullness of what God has given us. We're asking for nickels, but he's putting $5 bills in our hands. We're asking for this itty bitty thing, but he's putting so much more in our hands. Why? Because he is our father. Because he cares for us like a father. Because he's committed to us like a father. You think you're committed to your growth and your success and your achievement, but God is so much more committed to you than you are to yourself. The ancient church father said that God is nearer to you than you are to yourself. God knows your thoughts better than you know your own thoughts. God knows your personality and your needs better than you do. And because of his stated care for you, you can take him at his word and trust him, even when his plans seem to go contrary to your plans. Even when his responses to your prayers aren't what you thought they should be. Remember that the first premise of the disciple is that the God to whom I come is my father. And that is to shade everything else about your experience with God. Jesus invites you to lift up your heart to God as it is. No preparation necessary. Just come stumbling into the throne room because he's your father. He invites you to lift up a, a broken heart and he'll return it a whole heart. He invites you to, to lift up a, a, a broken heart and he'll return it a healed heart, to lift up a cold heart and he'll return it a loving heart. Lift up an empty heart and he'll return it a full heart. Lift up a praying heart and he'll return it a praising heart. Lift up your heart to God. In prayer, come to him as your broken, little, tiny, diminished self and feel yourself in his presence expand. As the church fathers used to say, heat makes all things expand. And when you enter into his presence and you experience the warmth of his love, yes, your heart will expand. Your mind will expand. Your capacity to serve will expand. You will find yourself opening up in expansiveness in the presence of this God because you know him to be a father. But right after he prays that the father would help everyone around them and themselves included to treat God as God, to hallow his name, to sanctify his name, to treat his name, which is representative of his person, as distinct, as special, as unique, as matchless and measureless. Treat him specially. He then moves on to the second declaration in prayer. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And I want us to see something very simple but very important for us to realize. And it is that the kingdom of God is advanced by prayer. 
First and foremost, I don't know what kind of preparations you might be making to advance God's kingdom, but prayer ought to be at the top of the list. I think oftentimes we, we don't buy it. We don't buy that prayer is the most important thing. And I, I, think, I think it's because we have a very narrow, limited view of the, of the way things ought to be. So if, if I pray and things don't turn out the way that I think they ought to go, well, then I deem prayer to be fruitless or, or not useful or not effective. But there are a couple things that I think we could say to this. One, as Pastor Glenn often says, God is always doing many things at once and all things well. You can't see all of the pieces on the board, to use one illustration. You can't take into account everything that he's taking into account. Your plans may be limited to your own personal temporal goods, but God has taken into consideration the good of an entire universe. You're taking into consideration your own little tiny affairs, but God has taken into consideration the affairs of the cosmos. And he is out to make all of these things work together for the good. He's committed not just to you, but to the, the myriad of people around you and around this globe. And, and oftentimes, what God is doing is playing the long game with you. You're, you we are nearsighted. I, I'm literally nearsighted. I, can see, I could see, if I took my contacts out, I could see what's right here. But Paul would just be fuzzy back there. All y'all would be fuzzy. Y'all would be one big multicultural blur, right? <laughs> y'all would just look like one of those uh, Slurpees at 7-Eleven where a kid gets uh, overzealous and they put a little bit of everything in it, right? That's what y'all would look like. And oftentimes, we don't, we're, we, it's all out there, everything out there is blurry, the, the future of glory that God has stated that he's out to create is blurry to us. And all we can see is right, right here in front of us. But he's, he's, he's out to expand our capacity. He wants to expand our vision. God has ordained that prayer would be the primary means by which his kingdom is built. You might say, well, God's just going to build his kingdom, whatever. No, God is actually committed himself to advancing his kingdom through our prayers. Our prayers matter in the advancement of his kingdom. He delights to answer those prayers. He wants to meet us in our prayers. It is a symptom of kingdom life and a cause of kingdom life. Prayer is a symptom of kingdom life. When you pray, it's like the breath on the window that says you're alive. It might even be the faintest breath, but it says that you're still alive. Prayer is a symptom of kingdom life, but it's also a cause of kingdom life. It's one of the ways that God has, has chosen to work, to involve us. We've always said this, that God is not interested in efficiencies. If he were interested in efficiencies, we would all be out of a job in terms of the kingdom. Because it's not efficient to use us. <laughs> why, why would he use that? It's like, do you think it's efficient to involve your children? 
Hello, come on somebody. It is not efficient for him to deploy us, but because he delights in us and he wants us to taste something of what it's like to be like him, he invites us to participate. And isn't it beautiful that he says, if you just utter the words of need to me, I can transform those words into action. If you just utter up the, the request to me, I can make sinners into saints. If you offer up your needs to me, I can turn emptiness into fullness. Do you see what I do through prayer? I can turn everything upside down. And here's what I want you to see. These prayer requests, look, if you run through them, he says that these disciples should pray for God's name to be hallowed, for people to treat him as God, for God's kingdom to come, and for daily bread, daily needs to be met. And for sins to be forgiven, as we ourselves forgive others. And for temptations to not prevail upon us to the point that we are driven into sin. I want you to see what he's doing. Jesus is instructing them to pray prayers that invite the kingdom of God into the soul. He wants God's kingdom to advance within you. Here's why. God wants his kingdom to advance within you so that he could advance his kingdom through you. If the kingdom is not advancing within you, then it's going to be impossible for you to participate in seeing the kingdom go forward. If the kingdom doesn't get in, it's going to be hard for you to get the kingdom out. We have to be those who can bear witness to what it feels like and what it's like to be under his care, to trust his sovereign word to know that he's in control, to be the kind of person who can stand firm and rooted and say, I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know who holds tomorrow. This is, this is the kind of faith he's trying to invite. Where sin does not reign in you, Christ does. Where greed does not reign in you, Christ does. Where, where, where selfishness does not reign in you, but Christ does. Where it's not your kingdom come, it's his kingdom come. And if, and if I were to, if I were your greatest enemy, you know, we like, I like to use this screw tape letters notion, right? If you're not familiar, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screw Tape Letters. And what he does is he does this, this fiction. Uh, he writes this fiction where an older devil is sort of coaching a younger devil. And, and what we get is some penetrating insights to consider the various ways that our enemy tries to attack us and tries to get us off of the rails. And I think that one of the primary ways that the evil one attacks and tries to tear down the kingdom of God is to simply get God's people to live a prayerless existence. And I think that one of the ways that we live a prayerless existence is by coming to two conclusions. I think that there are two conclusions that we draw. We draw the conclusion that we are not really who we, who we know ourselves to be and that God is not really who he claims himself to be. I think those are the two primary ways that we get off of this vision of prayer. The evil one gets us to think of ourselves as something other than weak and needy and he gets us to think of God as something other than loving father. And that's all it takes to make you a prayerless person. 
If you don't think that you're weak and needy, you will not pray. But if you know that you're weak and needy and you don't believe that God is a loving father, you will not pray. You see, you can believe that God is a loving father, but if you don't believe that you're weak and needy, you won't pray. You see, it must be both. We are, we are weak, and, weak and needy, and God is loving father. And those two should turn into a life of prayer, a life of prayer. You know, it's the same thing for us corporately, too. As a church, we are weak and needy. We can try to put all the flash we want on things. We can try to do all the ministry chopping that we want. We can, we can talk all the seminary we want, but all the seminary classes and lectures in the world cannot change one person's heart. But I like how the old school cats used to say that people may resist our teaching. They may resist our our acts of love, but they are helpless against our prayers. I claim that every day for my children. <laughs> I want us, Mosaic, to be the most praying people that we've ever met. The most visibly dependent people. And the only way that we will get there is one, is we must have a heart to heart with ourselves. And we must recognize, I, I know that you're in D.C., many of you, because everyone tells you how smart you are. And you're smart. I, I know that you're in D.C. because you are accomplished and you, you did this and that and you worked with so-and-so and you have all of this stuff that looks very impressive on a resume. But none of that stuff is sufficient for the work of the kingdom advancing in your own heart and in the world, the first thing we have to do is we have to, we have to disabuse ourselves of the lie that we are enough. Many of us are running ourselves into the ground. You're on the treadmill. You're like, you're like that little hamster with a lot of credentials. You're running and you're sweating and you're breaking your neck and you're getting nowhere spiritually. And what's behind that? Is it the need for people to acclaim you? Is it the need to convince yourself that you, you're worth something? I'm gonna tell you something. Nothing shouts into your ear that you're worth something like knowing God as your father. <laughs> That, that designation of God as your father will do what 25 Ivy League degrees could never do. It will do what all of the resume builders that Capitol Hill has to offer cannot do. We're invited to come to God as his children and know him to be our father. We must convince ourselves. We must come to the reality that we are weak and needy. And guess what? If you look with the right angle, it doesn't take long to learn that. No matter how competent we may be in other spheres. The second thing we need to do is we need to see what Jesus does with the disciples. Look at what he does. Right after he gives them this form of prayer and in the, in the most important themes of prayer in the life of a disciple, he then goes on to encourage them to a sort of shameless boldness in prayer. 
He tells this story. Everyone in the ancient Near East would have appreciated this. Hospitality was a high priority. And if you were having trouble meeting your obligations of hospitality, you would call on a neighbor. And that neighbor would never, would never endure the shame of letting you come up empty-handed. And he, he picks the most inconvenient time. It's funny, you know, it's like, it's a one-room shack where a family would live. And this dude comes knocking on the door late at night. And it's funny because the guy's like, what do you want? I'm in the bed with my kids. I can't help you. Leave me alone. But he knows the man's not going away. And this man is not going to lay there. It's because of his shameless boldness in requesting. It's a crazy request. How many of y'all would go knock on somebody's door at night and ask for some bread? I wish you would come knock on my door at midnight. There would be some furniture moving off of here. You know, you'd be catching these hands, all right? Come knocking on my door at midnight for some bread. It's shameless boldness. God wants you to come with a shameless boldness to him. Come with every bit of need, no matter how small or how big or how crazy or insane, bring it. And then the next thing that he does is he just appeals to them. You do everything in your strength to care for your children. If you have children, many of you who don't have children in here, you do a lot for the children of this church as a faithful godparent in the faith. We do so much for our kids. We bend over backwards. We take them to this and that practice and rehearsal. We want them to have a better life than we had. We, we do all of these things. And Jesus is making a simple lesser to greater argument. You're evil and you do these things. <laughs> Jesus don't mince no words. This is, this is the part when people talk about, they, they just they love the teaching of Jesus. This is one of those parts that gets edited out, all right? Don't nobody want that Jesus that says, you're evil. He says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts, how much more the heavenly father? Do you see what it boils down to? It boils down to, do you trust in the goodness of God? Do you believe he's good? I know that it's hard for many of you. You wrestle with this. How could God be good when this is happening in my life? How could God be good if I've experienced this? How could God be good if I am facing such hellacious circumstances? And I'm going to tell you something. I, I've said before, and I'll say it again, that I think that it's in these times that we really need to sense our need to be taught by brothers and sisters in the faith who don't live in our day and age and who don't live in our culture. It's hard for Americans. We're entitled. We automatically think that God owes me this and God ought to be doing this and this would be cruel if I didn't have this. But I want you to look at brothers and sisters in the Middle East right now and the way that they persevere and the way that they look to God and trust in his goodness, even though all hell is breaking loose around them. I want you to look at the saints of old who were able to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Look, 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 at, look at Job when he said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, not the Lord giveth and the devil taketh away. The Lord takes some things away. Because at the end of the day, what God wants people to see is that you will follow him and worship him because of his goodness and greatness, not because of what he gives. 
that he alone, aside from any of his benefits, is worthy to you. And he tests us. I like looking back through history at the brothers and sisters who were burned at the stake for their faith. They could have said, God, I've been faithful to you, and you're going to let me get burned up at the stake. You're going to let me be the center of a barbecue. That is messed up. But that's not what they said. People like Polycarp who said, all these years I've served him and he's never done me any wrong. How could I turn on my master and my God? Our our Americanism has crept into our Christianity when we do not have capacity to endure and persist through suffering, through hardships. And let's be real, compared to other hardships, it just, it's helpful to live in community with the global church, at least in our minds, to be reminded that, mm, comparatively speaking, we enjoy extraordinary luxuries at the hands of God. But we need to look back at that chief sufferer where God was doing the most ultimate good, even in his affliction, that God abandoned him so that he will never abandon you. That God hid his face from his son so that he will never have to hide his face from you. We may not be able to to get an interpretive designation on our afflictions, but we know that it's not because God isn't committed to us, that God isn't for us, that God doesn't love us, that, that God isn't more interested in our lives than we are, that God isn't out for our greatest good. We must be a cross centered people, and we must be a hope filled people that advances the kingdom through prayer. Nothing commends the kingdom to get out. Like when the kingdom has gotten into you in such a way that everything has fallen down around you and you can say, it is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford wrote that hymn. When he got to the spot on his, on his voyage, across the sea where he lost his family. And he got to that spot and he issued a prayer through song and he said, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. Amen. And prayer can convince you that it will be well. That you can sing through days of sorrow, knowing that all will be well. So let us be a prayerful people. Let us pray that the kingdom would get in to our souls, and that Jesus would set up shop as the ruler and king of every desire, 
of every inclination, of all of our motivations, and that through us the kingdom would get out. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for the gift of prayer. We thank you, Lord, that you don't despise weak and needy people. Lord, we pray that we would remember, Lord, that so many times in our lives we have not because we ask not. And we ask wrongly to spend it on our own passions. But Lord, we pray that you would set our desires aright. Help us to desire the kingdom. Help us to long for it, to set our love on the kingdom and its advancement. Help us to set our desires on the flourishing of our neighbors. Help us to set our desires on the flourishing of our spouses. Lord, help many of us this day to determine that we will not see another day of prayerless marriage from this day forward, that we will pray with and for one another. Let us pray and double down on our vows to pray with and for our children so that they will know nearness to God through our lived example. Lord, we pray that every street in Northeast D.C. could bear witness to the prayerful attention of Grace Mosaic members, that there would be no street, if, if all the street signs could talk, that they would say, I've seen a Grace Mosaic member praying here, lifting up the welfare of the neighborhood. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit because you delight to give your spirit who ushers in the kingdom by evicting sin and selfishness in our souls. So Lord, we pray that you would, you would have your way. Get your glory through us. Advance your kingdom in us and through us. We ask, Lord, thank you for acknowledging our little faith. And we pray that our little faith would acknowledge you and become big faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.